Welcome to We Are Scared, the podcast where we dissect and dismember your favorite horror movies. Let's go, girls. Okay, my dear friends. Yeah. Please do enlighten me as to what you are afraid of this week. Why are you scared? Okay, I'll go first. Something about living in New York that is is fun and quirky, but also not always great is just knowing that no matter what between when you leave your home and when you get to where you are going you're gonna have a fucked experience somewhere somewhere on the subway and yesterday my friend Erica and I walked from Battery Park up to Erica's house on the way there on the subway on the escalators coming out of Grand Central from the 7 to transfer to the 6 someone had shat on the escalators and all of the fecal matter was like concentrated at the top of the escalators so that the escalators were just like rolling through this and just getting and I was just like I actually don't think that I have the faculties to handle this right now so I feel like part of why I'm scared is just knowing that like no matter what at the beginning of your experience every day there's gonna be something there's always something that happens that makes me feel yeah and you can never predict what it's gonna be so I feel like I'm scared I watched a rat dying today in the subway (laughs) just on the sidewalk how how did you know it was dying because it was like just standing right there and people like shrieked and screamed at it and it just didn't even budge and I like turned around to look at it and and its head was just slowly sinking into the sidewalk. Oh no. I love it here. <laughs> so that's why I'm scared this week. What about you two? Why are you scared? Mine actually dovetails off of yours in a great way. I moved into this apartment a little over a year and a half ago, and I've had four live cockroaches that I've had to deal with. And then I've had two that were dead upon my arrival to them. But a couple days ago, there was one in my bathtub. And this is the third one that's been in my bathtub too. It's this terrible feeling going into my bathroom and seeing out of the corner of my eye something in my bathtub because even before I see it and I process it, I've registered what I'm about to have to deal with. One of my biggest fears about moving to New York was having to deal with cockroaches. And I was like, I don't know if I can live alone because I don't know if I could deal with them. And I feel very proud of myself because I can deal with them and I do it. I've done it several oh, times, yeah. but it is just like this very horrific process of being like, I know what I have to do. It really sucks. I hate moving them from the tub yes. to the toilet. Oh my God. Oh my God. And I oh my God. usually oh leave God. them dead for a while. Of course. <laughs> before I, I have to scene. deal with it. Yeah. Okay. Why are you scared this week? Okay. So I, I had a wonderful time this weekend. I went away to the Hamptons and I learned that at this time of the year, ticks can be a problem. Mm -hmm. And I had never worried about ticks before, Mm -hmm. but now I have a newfound reason to be afraid of ticks and Lyme disease. I also have a somewhat more existential (laughs) fear, which is like a, I don't know, it was wonderful to have this weekend away and it was like a lovely thing to indulge in and it feels so special and I like, I keep catching myself in these cycles of trying to live in a hurry, like really just get things under my belt. And I am enjoying that to some extent, but I feel like I'm maybe doing it a bit too quickly almost. And I am 
I don't know, I'm like on the one hand afraid of that, and then on the other hand I'm like, oh man, am I going to be one of those people that you can say this is wasted on the young about? Why would going away this weekend make you feel that way? I don't know, it just put it in my head. I think that youth is wasted on the people that wonder if youth is being wasted on them. Oh shit, okay, so that is me then. It's also <laughs> so, me, girl. I don't know if we're young enough to apply to the youth is wasted on I the think young. we are. We're still young. I think we we're going to be young until we're at least 65. I also so I agree with good. that. I like that. I have the distinct honor and privilege of introducing someone who has not yet hosted an episode but is part of our trio, Camille Williams Ginsburg. She has been a shepherd of so many wonderful things in my life, Thai food, Succession, House of the Dragon, and now she is going to shepherd us through a distinctly wonderful conversation about Halloween. Camille. Thank you so much. That was really, that was beautiful. I am so excited to dive into this conversation. I love Halloween, the movie, and the holiday. We dive pretty quickly into this into this episode. It's a fun conversation. It's a funny conversation. A few things about the film. It's from 1978. There have been many iterations in the franchise since then, but we are talking about the original one. It's directed by John Carpenter. I'm excited for you to hear and learn. A reminder, if you don't want to watch the movie, but you want to listen to this, we have a synopsis episode as well that you can listen to. I'm going to let us take it away from here. Thanks for listening. You can't talk about the movie without talking about the credit scene. Just from the first second of it and the first like note I wrote, this iconic fucking score. Like it just hits you. It's so good. It immediately sets the tone. It's this music that even if you haven't seen the movie, you know about more than any other movie. I think this score is amazing. I was not aware that score was from this movie. Okay. I just associate it with spooky things. Yeah. And so it was cool to see where it originated. Yeah. They cut a version of this movie and showed it to some executive somewhere, and it didn't have any music at all. Wow. And the executive was like, this is a dumb movie. It's not <laughs> scary. I don't know what you're trying to do here. And then he wrote so, the score in three days. That's so interesting. He's competent, by the way. Yeah. Our famed director right. and composer for the film as well, and obviously. Cola. And co Yeah. He, did, he was busy. He was busy. busy. I think that horror scores do so much to create an ambiance and to inform you that you're watching something scary. That thing that people say about a movie that's scary just turn the sound off and you won't be scared anymore. Yeah. The score, the credits, the jack-o'-lantern, and the credit part is always a really important part of film, but in this one it feels extra important. We start in 1962, I believe, in Haddonfield, yeah. Illinois, on Halloween night. Immediately, we are the killer. We are Michael. Mm -hmm. And I think we can hear the breathing in the first shot of the film. And Michael's sister, Judith, making out with her boyfriend. She's supposed to be babysitting Michael. She's not doing a very good job. They don't even know where he is. He's six years old and just chilling outside on Halloween night. So already not doing a great job. We are very victim blamey on this. We're always, if we're going to do anything consistently, it's side with the killer. Yeah. Sure. They really should have been watching. <laughs> like it's their, fully their fault. He didn't feel cared for. Yeah, he was not loved. Yeah. That's his childhood trauma right there. Judith and her boyfriend go upstairs to have sex. Michael grabs a knife. 
the boyfriend leaves, Michael goes upstairs, and he picks up this clown mask that's amid strewn clothing on the floor, and he puts it on, and our POV is obscured by the mask, so we're even more in his mind. And then he sees his sister, topless, just combing her hair, singing to herself. She's so happy. She just had her first orgasm. Um, (laughs) But then Michael just like walks over to her and starts just murdering her. She's like, Michael! (laughs) (laughs) And she dies topless on the floor, bloody, but not like excessive blood. Sexy blood. Sexy blood. (laughs) Just a taste. And then Michael's parents come home and we finally see Michael maskless. He's just like a very Aryan six-year-old boy dressed up as a clown holding a knife that's maybe like half of his body. It's a comically big knife. What did you think of this first scene. It really creeped me out and I feel like I haven't seen anything like it before where we're seeing a child be very violent. I will say, I don't know why this bothered me. Something about the little kid who plays Michael, I didn't feel like he looked evil enough. There was something behind those eyes that made me feel like he was very phased by what just happened. Yeah. And that made me feel something towards him akin to care. It's so strange that we see the boyfriend wearing the mask right before he has sex with Judith. And then Michael puts on the same mask to murder her with her tits Mm. out. I couldn't actually quite put my finger on what Michael's relationship with sex I'm sure we're going to get to it. I do love long takes in movies. Mm. They didn't film that in one go. It's Mm -hmm. three different takes spliced together, but I do love that it feels like it's one smooth. You follow him all the way around the house, into the house, up the stairs. It's a cool beginning. It's a cool opening. When you see Michael pick up the knife, there's a moment when he goes into the kitchen and picks up the knife. So a very small group of people making this movie, they were all very young and everybody was just doing a little bit of everything. And in that, they couldn't work with the kids all the time because this thing about kids. Anyway, this woman- <laughs> Thing about kids. Child thing labor about kids. <laughs> <laughs> There's this thing about kids, it's that they're children. <laughs> <laughs> the hand that you see in the beginning is actually um, oh. Deborah some, Hill, Deborah yeah. Hill, the co-writer of the movie, wow. like, takes the knife out of the drawer. Similar to you, Annika, the first thing that immediately struck me about this movie is that it's such an origin story. I learned also that John Carpenter took a psychology class when he was in school in Kentucky. He went to a mental institution yeah. and he met this kid who yeah. was left this impression on him and mm-hmm. gave those lines of description to the detective who we meet later on about how demonic this human being seemed and like lights on no one's home. Yeah, yeah. Which is even scarier a mm-hmm. little bit. Nothing else in the realm of film had the word Halloween in the title at this point in mm-hmm. time. And I don't think anything scary had been made about that holiday specifically. So it's interesting too that mm-hmm. a kid is being made the villain here. I agree with you about it being an origin story and not being a very compelling aspect of this film, but the filmmakers leave us with far more questions than answers. We know that he was violent as a child and we know that to some extent he continues to be violent, but beyond that, we don't know why he did it. And that is so scary. I yeah. think again, that's part of the like imagination, like leaving it to your imagination and that being less than anything that mm-hmm. you 
And I think that's huge in this movie, particularly because of what you're saying. So much of it is left to the imagination. Michael is not human. He's too close to a human to be an actual supernatural monster, but there is a supernatural element that comes with his strength, with his ability to not die and to be everywhere and all of this stuff. I think that it benefits the fear factor of this is not knowing too much. The only information they do give us about him is that he is from an upper middle class mm -hmm. nuclear family. And I do think that if we met Michael Myers as an adult, it would be very easy to otherize him where I think that this film looks at its audience and says, this is someone from your community. Yeah, that's great. Also, not to get ahead, but we have two young children that are probably around maybe a little bit older than Michael was when he killed his sister but Tommy and Lindsay the two kids that Annie and Lori are babysitting are that generation around that age even if they're a couple years older that Michael was and they're being babysat too right and one of them is being babysat by somebody who's also trying to just get laid so there's a lot of parallels another thing that's so core to Michael in this movie is how Dr. Loomis talks about how he's known him for 15 years and this man is the devil this man is the boogeyman this man is not a human like we constantly are hearing that narrative I and it's interesting i think texas chainsaw was the rural and urban divide i think black christmas was more uh, suburban and urban and this one i think again is also suburban and urban I think the suburban home invasion genre doesn't create the same type of dichotomy that other horror does because it wants to make you think that everything is fine and you get to partake in this American dreamy white picket fence nuclear family situation and that puritanical idea that is so wholesome is being obliterated in a way and there isn't an evil that you can see and say that's the evil that's happening it's like everyone thinks that everything's okay and it's fine and we have this great community and then like you're saying even though Michael was hospitalized for 15 years and everything but it's like somebody in your community is doing this to you it's not you can't see this evil coming from miles away. It's just, it's next door. It's your house. It's your child. I do just want to give some high-level production details. This movie was filmed in about 20 days, four weeks, in May of 1978. The budget was 320000 which today translates to about $1.4 It was directed, written, and scored by John co-written by Deborah, who's actually his girlfriend at the time. So what a cute little couple goals. Complicated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like really testing your relationship. And one of the producers from Black Christmas, Irwin Yabalans, I think is how you say it, approached... Yablins? Yeah. Yablins? Yeah. yeah. Approached John. He's the reason it's still such a big franchise. I'm so Oh, really? No, yeah. that's cool. He, said, he loves Michael Myers so much. He's, I'm going to keep him alive. Wow. And like they, he said something like 22. 22 is the maximum number of Michael Myers movies I'm willing to make. Wow. Yeah. So we still have 10. Yeah, in theory. But I don't. Yeah. That's knows. overkill. But that he's a big part of the reason <laughs> that in every other iteration of this movie, Michael does not endure uh, an actual death-inducing moment. Like, he doesn't go through something that would actually kill him because he has to keep coming back to Yeah. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> Protect Michael. <laughs> Protect Mike. Honestly, that's our vibe. Yeah. <laughs>
Jamie Lee Curtis. This is her debut as a Scream Queen film star icon. And they cast her because her mom was in Psycho, yeah. Janet Lee. Yeah. And they thought that it would help with the PR of yeah. the movie. There's also a couple characters that are named after Psycho characters in this. There's a Loomis in Psycho, and there's a Tommy Doyle in Psycho as well. So a big connection to that film. A couple other higher level film stars were approached for this, but said no because of the compensation. And Christopher Lee was actually also approached for our Lord of the Rings girlies out there. Yeah. But he said no and said it was one of the biggest mistakes of his career, saying oh. no. What else? I didn't know this until our podcast last week it was highly influenced by black christmas and maybe started as a sequel to black christmas there's some differing ideas on that i think specifically around wanting to be clear that there's no copyright or mm. stealing issues there a lot of the inspiration comes from celtic halloween traditions and this idea that evil cannot die so at the end michael gets shot about six times but he doesn't die which is crazy <laughs> It was so fun. What a fun thing to do to an audience. Yeah. Have him like coming up from the ground. It's just so joyful. Yeah, yeah. You're just like, oh, you thought. The production had such a low budget. I love this fact so much. The costume designer went to a Halloween costume store and bought a Captain Kirk mask yeah. and widened the eyes and spray painted it. And that is our Michael Myers yeah, mask. Took off the side buns and yeah. ratted up the hand. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? I love that. I know. The, the best art comes out of costume very display. limited <laughs> budget. Like does. That's yeah. where you get to be so creative. Yeah. And I think what's also so crazy, Camille, you mentioned how much that John Carpenter made from this movie, which is $10,000, which was a lot. Yeah, yeah. And to him, I think it was too. But the next, I think, biggest sum of money went to Loomis, the detective, because oh, he was yeah. an established like, Hollywood actor at the time, and he was sought after. And he was willing to do it, and apparently everybody was very happy on this set. Nobody did oh, anything terrible. Thank God. One one film wow. that we can feel fine about and watching. they all just were so delighted. <gasps> oh, that's beautiful. They were all so young and just trying to make a movie. Oh. And there was a whole thing in the beginning, too, I think, like, when the guy you mentioned earlier, Owen Yeglins or whatever, there's a, there was another man that they had to go to together once they had the idea for the movie to get the money. And John Carpenter was basically like, I can do it for $300,000, but if I'm going to do it for that much, I want full creative yeah. control. Yeah. No one can tell me what to do with it. And he was like, if you can do it for $300,000, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. This film is also obviously scholars and critics are always divided about everything, but some people argue that this film ended this kind of second golden age of horror, American horror, because after Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Psycho and Black Christmas and Halloween, studios caught on to the fact that they could make millions and millions of dollars off of these types of films. So even though we see a huge rise in slasher that copies this blueprint, it's made in a different way. One one more fact about this is that it grossed more than 75 million in the first six years, oh which is a long God. time, but still. Oh. And, and I love the story about how it got picked up too. Initially when they distributed it, they had to do it town by town because no major distributor was willing to take this movie because they didn't believe in it. And eventually they went to a film festival, I think it was in Chicago or something like that, and they sold tickets the first day, it was like a couple hundred, then the next day it doubled, then the next day it tripled 
circled and like by the weekend it had it was ten times the number of people that were coming to that movie theater to watch that movie. Which is so cool. I love that. It's a very organic word of mouth. Capitalism kills everything. Uh, Good. Even today when I think of horror, the first thing that comes to mind is Halloween. Hmm. Especially because when I think of horror, I also think of slashers. It's iconic, and I think it's more iconic than Texas Chainsaw or Friday. I think that it stands on its own a little bit, but that might be a controversial opinion. It's also known for its use of the gliding Steadicam aesthetic. And it has these amazing widescreen shots and compositions, and we get some of the most amazing shots with Michael, the shadows in the background, Mm. and just, those are my favorite. I feel like today we see a lot of that in this campy callback way, and every time I get a shot like that, it's just, it's like a dopamine hit, it's amazing. And this one just did it so well. Yeah. is such an interesting genre in that way I feel like I never notice in other films camera angle and light and sound in a way that like horror the films often feel so holistic in their visual auditory approach and I just love that care I think that's amazing horror has to be so stylized because the feeling of fear and being unsettled is so much harder to create in an audience Mm. member than like happiness or love or laughter or something so they get so creative in terms of sound design in terms of designing these shots and all of this stuff because they really need to make you feel unsettled and it's not an easy thing to do and you're just completely pulled into it in such a beautiful way beautiful is a weird word to use but (laughs) they also had two separate actors i think we get one shot of a maskless michael at his age of 23 and then everything else is played by another actor and they call him the shape yeah Mm. because he's just the shape of Mikey. He had a good shape. He had a good, yeah, yeah, he had a good shape. That's true. The whole time I was trying to figure out if we were supposed to find him sexy or not. (laughs) (laughs) No! Are you sure? Because they could have made him more. I'm revealing so much about my dating life right now. Um, (laughs) He's literally just like a masked. I don't understand. I spilled water all over myself. Um, Well, but he is like, he's very tall and like, and tight. I do like, I'm like a sucker for like coveralls, you know, when he puts those on, I'm like, I I, I see that part of it. Wait, what? That's the part you see? Guys, we really do maybe I love a man who can like fix my car and I feel like if you have coveralls, you can fix, I don't have a car, Mm. but you, if I had one, you could fix it. I, I feel like in a in my defense, I feel like in a way it is scarier to have someone who is like physically attractive and so reactive to sex. Mm. I don't really understand fully the relationship this movie has with sex, but I feel like it's obvious that Michael has a little bit of a hang up so- and something about him being in an adult man body and like a sexy adult man body. (laughs) I just, not that I necessarily think he's definitely sexy. I just feel like they could have been trying to make him sexy. I see. I understand what you're saying. So uh, I was also interested by this and I am very interested to hear what you have to say about this, Camille. I 
So everybody did analyze this movie from the point of view of, okay, these women are dying and they're very sexually active and it's at the hands of this man who apparently is not. And, um... Virgin. Yeah, and John Carpenter responded to that analysis of the movie and was like, I did not make this movie to criticize women who are sexually active in any way. I made this movie about babysitters being harassed by a man in a mosque who is repressed. Wow. Who relates to one of the characters who is also repressed and that's Lori. Yeah. That was his... If that's at all enlightening, that's his. I love that. That's great. I don't know necessarily, though, if I think that intent overpowers cultural impact. I agree with that, too. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. When directors, writers, artists make this defense about what they intended, when at that point the only thing that really matters is the reception and the consequences, and you can have your relationship with the art you've created, but it is equally owned by everyone else who's engaging it with it now. Maybe this is like self-indulgent, but it makes me feel better that that was his intent and his intention was not to kill sexually active women. A lot of artists will not name their intent to allow viewers to center their own experiences and connections, but I, I don't know, that makes it different for me a little bit and makes me appreciate it more. One thing he said was these teenagers were just meant to be teenagers acting like teenagers at the time. I think that in itself, the assumption that that's what teenagers were doing at the time, like being mindless, not paying attention, being very entitled, which is what these teenagers were behaving like. It, that in itself, I think, is a commentary and a mess. At the very least, he is unconsciously or consciously, perhaps, sexualizing high school girls, no matter how you look at it. The girls could have been murdered and not been in only panties perched on a chair with their beautiful perky breasts out. And they didn't have to be having sex with their boyfriends and wearing tube socks up to their knees. There's no world in which we would not interpret that as sexualizing young girls. I completely agree. And I also think when he said repressed, that this is about repression, like mm. what kind of repression is it about other than sexual repression? Which is so obviously what the whole, like why is Michael killing his sister who just had sex with a man while she's naked? And the connection to Lori too, her friends keep teasing her that she chose this life that is more sober and not goody two-shoes per se, but- She's a good girl. She's yeah. conservative in her, e even in just her appearance. Like the most skin we see of her is when he cuts her sleeve off. So yeah, I hope he never hears this, but I do think he may have been deluding himself a little bit thinking that this was not about sex in some way and like the sexuality of women yeah or perhaps it was so normalized that he didn't even realize he was doing it yeah that's what i mean too about the time that it was made mm. like what he might have meant i do see how from his perspective this is just a movie about babysitters being harassed by psycho maniac mm. with a knife a couple things that I want to point out, Deborah Hill actually wrote all of the dialogue between the women. Yeah. So she was the one who really created Annie and Linda, mm -hmm. which I thought was interesting because I find them both insufferable and also just shitty to have yeah. as female characters. They're vapid, they suck, they're so annoying, and to have them be the cheerleader or party girl or whatever is shitty, but also it is 1978. If 
we don't isolate this movie and we look at it in context with all the other movies that were happening. I know Black Christmas felt a little bit different, but Texas Chainsaw Massacre is women with their hard nipples running around having orgasmic experiences while they die. This movie isn't created in a vacuum and horror is shitty to women. And I'm not trying to, well, I am justifying it, but not saying it's okay, but it was trying to fit a mold that already existed. Thank you for that, because I do think that I had forgotten that while we are watching this as a very high art, it's supposed to be entertaining as well, and this is what people find entertaining. I agree. Linda and Annie are just the absolute worst. I hate them so much. You said they suck, and I think that they suck in a way that is not even unique from one another, and that bothers me, that they're They're the same same character. And again, written women did not have a lot of nuance in this time. And it sucks that they were written by a woman, but female characters were not well developed in this time. Lori's well developed, but still she's well developed because she's literally the opposite of these two shitty women. And so we see her as good because she's not what they are. What I love about this film, and I'm so sorry, I love how overt it is about its themes of sex being bad and of women who have sex dying. You know that that's bad to say, but I love that you sit down to watch this movie and you know everything that's going to happen. You know that Judith is going to get murdered with her titties out. You know that these women are going to be naked. You know that immediately after, I think Ben and Linda have sex. Ben, that's her boyfriend. Bob. 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 Ben. (laughs) After they have sex, she dies immediately. And we know that because Halloween is, I think, the blueprint, especially for a movie like Scream, which was speaking these rules and these terms and everything. I find so much joy in watching this movie because I know exactly what's going to happen. Even before watching it for the first time, you know what's going to happen. You know that if you have sex, you're going to die. If you drink, if you smoke weed, you're going to die. If you take off your shirt, you're going to die. And it's, I, yeah, I love it. It does remove a lot of the pressure to try to find the ways in which we are being subtly manipulated. I appreciate that we are being just explicitly (laughs) manipulated. There's no question about yeah what's fucked up about it it's just right there and i think there's so much privilege in watching this movie in 2023 instead of in 1978 because we know that it's wrong for what it's saying we know that the themes that can be pulled out of it are deeply sexist and fucked up and so we have that ability to look at it through a lens that's not worried that this is going to have societal implications because this came out x amount of years ago and we're culturally talking about why horror movies are bad so there's a little bit of safety in that i also recognize that maybe this didn't do great things for equity in the world but we can look at it now and try to pick it up and look at it outside of societal norms. I do think what is, what's inextricable from making a movie is that it is being made for entertainment. In the end, all it is doing is saying more about ourselves and what we find entertaining. Bummer that we do actually kind of like seeing mm-hmm. get cut up on a screen. But that's what this movie was made for. It was made for entertainment. Yeah. I think. And I think that this movie is less overtly violent towards women than Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I agree. I agree. This feels like it takes less pleasure in the pain and Mm. more pleasure in the sex. We 
descend into the babysitting moments, it's very clear that Annie is just, she's babysitting this girl, Lindsay. She just wants to see her boyfriend. She just wants to get down to business. Lori's very like, she's very, cares about the kids. She's so motherly, nurturing to the kids while Annie is just spilling stuff all over herself, taking her clothes off, running around. Her little butt gets stuck in the window at some point. (laughs) I forgot about that. (laughs) And then she finally goes to have sex with her boyfriend. And then we get this just iconic jump scare in the car when she's trying to pull the car out of the driveway and Michael's there and he knifes and strangles her. Uh, oh, so one, I think he stops her too. I think so. Maybe he strangles and stabs <laughs> the other one. Um, so she's, we have our first kill, which happens at 54 minutes. Linda and Bob have sex and then Bob goes downstairs to get a beer. Of course, sex and alcohol if you're in a horror movie don't do those things that's like basic knowledge and he gets impaled on the wall by michael with the knife which is so amazing i think that's amazing as like that after michael does that he just stands in front of him and looks at him like he's yeah yeah he's hot on a wall yeah Kind of like hot. Tilts his head. Monica? Okay. <laughs> I do think that because the characters are all so awful, yeah. I am brought to the place where by that point, you're smoking a cigarette in the bed of someone that you don't know. Yeah, having sex, stealing their beer. I kind of want you to get stabbed. And I, I love movies that make me look at myself and my own moral, empathic failures because the only person that I'm like, please don't die is Lori and the children, of course. But everyone else, I feel kind of excited to watch them perish. Yeah, yeah. That's great, that's great. Absolutely. So in a way, Michael was just doing his best. He was just doing what we all wanted to see. If we were there, we would have done the same thing. The exact same thing. He wouldn't have stabbed me. (laughs) We have a different relationship. (laughs) If I was there, he would not have stabbed me. I would teach him how to love. I'm different. You would teach him how to love. And then he goes upstairs and again, okay, it's bad, but... Goes upstairs, pretends to be Bob, puts a sheet over his head, and Bob's glasses on, and and Linda comes out and just shows him her boobs. <laughs> that really was just amazing. <laughs> and then the you're, glasses. yeah, oh. you're like this, you're gonna die for sure, because Michael can't deal with seeing boobs at all. <laughs> it just it sets it's what triggers the murdering. Yeah. Probably. Anyways, he kills Linda, strangles her with a, the phone cord. Lori then ends up going over to the house and finding Judith Myers tombstone in the bed, which is very cool. I do I love the tombstone there, but yeah, it's a great shot. And then that triggers our Scream Queen extravaganza where she's running around. She stabs him a couple times. She thinks that she's killed him. She's running from house to house. It's this very chaotic final scene, which really has set the standard. Jamie Lee is very much our original Scream Queen from Halloween specifically. Dr. Loomis ends up coming to the house and just in the nick of time shoots Michael six times and he falls from the balcony to the ground. You would think that he was dead. You would think. (laughs) But he's not. He's not. And then we have this great 
moment of dialogue where I think Lori says it was the boogeyman and Dr. Loomis said, yes, he is the boogeyman. And we have this kind of... Fact it was. Fact it was. <laughs> the boogeyman is a running theme because the kids are talking about the boogeyman. Tommy keeps calling him the boogeyman, but I just love this theme throughout the film, which is that it's a supernatural fear of Michael or that Michael is supernatural. He's subhuman and having that be the ending is just amazing, especially coming from somebody like Dr. Loomis who knows him so well and knows that he is not a human person. He's this Yeah, monster. I think it's interesting how they reinforce that in at least two of the movies we've seen so far. So in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, what makes them less human is the way that they kill animals. And I think in this movie, it's a similar thing. At yeah. some point, he strangles a dog. He kills two dogs. He does kill two dogs. Two whole dogs. And it was when they find the first dog in the house, the guy is like, a man would do that to a dog. And then Lewis is like, this isn't a man. Ex- yes. He must have gotten hungry. Yeah. 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 To name another horror movie, trope that I don't think we've mentioned yet. The trope of animals and children sometimes being clued into the threat before the adults and not being listened to. Tommy continuing to say, the boogeyman's there, the boogeyman's there. And for Lori not to hear him, it taps into this fear of kids say crazy things all the time. And I think that putting you into a space where you have to actually wonder if that dark, bizarre thing your three-year-old just said is actually based on some truth or if it's just out of their cute little deranged little mind. Absolutely. With the character of Loomis, like we have this whole mythology forming around who this guy is. And there's so much anticipation built up around his demeanor and his character. I think Loomis as a device is so interesting here. Having someone with true intimate knowledge of this person reaffirm that they are indeed very dangerous and there is no good, where normally you would expect the opposite, the people closest to them to see some sort of humanity within them. And I also think that Loomis having this relationship with the local police adds this fear element of, in horror movies often, the law enforcement does not know until the very end about the evil that's going on and then they're able to put a stop to it. And something about law enforcement actually being very aware of the evil, but not alerting the public to flee or do a certain thing. It's just so unsettling. It's terrifying. But also that does come from a place of privilege of having ever been in a position in my life where I was able to view the police as saviors and not as incompetent fools who are... Or dangerous. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There are a couple of things that come to mind. There's a scene in this movie where Lori runs up to a house and she's screaming help and the people on the inside put the lights on but then put them all off again and completely ignore her pleas and cries for help. And that made me think of this woman, Kat... Kitty Genovese. Kitty Genovese, who in New York... She, like, was this woman who was returning to her home in Queens, and she got chased down by this guy who brutally stabbed her. It was initially reported that there were lots of witnesses, and nobody called the police, and it was this huge, horrific thing, and it was meant to be about the apathy of living in an urban area, the lack of care. And it had nothing to do with apathy. It was about fear of these institutional bodies and their inability to take care of the people who really needed their care. And this is so 
not as extreme, but I was on the subway the other day and I was waiting for the queue, it was Times Square, and the whole station was filling up with smoke. Like, oh, I saw this on Instagram. Smoke, and I was like, I'm gonna wait the two minutes that it says my train is gonna be here and I'm just gonna hold this over my mouth. And But there were two policemen on the platform with me and I was like, if they aren't alarmed and trying to tell people to leave, I'm gonna assume that I'm not gonna die. And so, I just stood there, but then as I got onto the train and took a breath of air that was not filled with smoke, I was like, oh my god, they should absolutely have been telling people to clear the platform and not be standing there and not be... Oh my god. All that to say, it is an important and understandable theme about who can you turn to for help and what can you do when all these things are happening. It reminds me of the failure of that shooting in Sunset Park in the subway. Yeah. Thank god no one died, but... Yeah. Oh God, like, why are you here? Is it only to arrest 15-year-old kids Kids from jumping the turnstiles? Yeah, I don't know. I really don't know. They literally came onto the platform. I saw them come onto the platform. They walked right by me, and every single other person who was standing on the platform holding their (laughs) clothing over their mouths, trying to breathe. Law enforcement, I know this is nothing new, but law enforcement in train stations are... We were waiting for the train a month ago after we saw Pearl and there was this guy who was so intoxicated face down on the platform throwing up oh my god and there was nobody that we could I went up to the attendant and I was like can we get some help please is there a medic around or something and it's like whenever you need somebody they're not there I don't have words for the exact point I'm trying to make but I did just think it was very interesting that they included that scene that she was so desperately pleading for that was not a cry for help that was like mocking in any way. She was distressed. I'd like to think if I had heard a cry like that from somebody, I would have called 911 and tried to get that person help. And I do think it's interesting that they just put the lights off and acted like she wasn't there, and I wonder what that was. I think they thought it was a Halloween prank, but I don't think that justifies it. It adds just such a satisfying layer of terror, though, to actually see a character do all of the logical things that a character should be doing in that moment and to see those things be ineffective and failures. At a certain point, Lori has nowhere to go except for to her own strength. I did really appreciate that about the movie, and I appreciate that in all the small ways, too. She grabbed everything that she could that was near her to stab him or keep him at bay. Even when she is stuck in the, oh my gosh, that closet scene where she gets trapped in the back there, and you are in there with her and he's just coming into that room, like, brilliant that she pokes him in the eye with (laughs) with a hanger and picks the knife up off the ground and tries to retaliate. I think that did really add a layer of terror that this woman is doing everything that you could reasonably tell her to do and still nothing is, no one is helping. Her intelligence. That's like the thing about watching horror movies is that I think in the back of our minds, when we watch them, we always think about what we would do differently. You can watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre and be like, you guys, come on. Yeah. Get your shit together. (laughs) But when you watch Halloween, you're like, yeah, I would run around. I would run outside and scream and people would come to my aid. And it's no. Yeah. So it's, yeah. Michael is so triggered by sex or I'll roll that back is it sex that triggers Michael I think there is so much more to say about his relationship with sex I don't understand it I was wondering if perhaps at 
a very young age, he had already had the hatred towards women who are open about their sexuality already instilled in him. I feel like there is a lot of rage towards women who are sexual, particularly young women. It's very incel. Mm -hmm. It's like really giving incel. And I feel like incel wasn't as much of a thing in the 1978. In 1978. He is an incel. Yeah. Or is he just a cell? Oh. Is he just a... He's... He is six. So... No, but an adult... (laughs) Does he... (laughs) Okay, six-year-olds can be incels by default. (laughs) I think something that is really interesting, and I'm thinking about that as we're having this conversation, is having ambiguity around it, at least for the first one, maybe they do expand upon it, leads a lot of room to make this film relevant in whatever year you're watching Mm. it, which I appreciate. We can watch this and we can say, oh, incels. Like, incels are big right now. They, like, love. (laughs) They're there the moment. And 10 years ago or whatever, you could have a similar conversation. I don't know what you would plug in culturally, but just feels like you can watch this movie at any time. And because there's so much ambiguity around it, you can, it's still relevant. I guess what I feel a little confused about is whether Michael Myers is a Leatherface character where like sex isn't even in his Mm. orbit. Like he doesn't have a sexual relationship with the action or if these very intimate ways of murdering these women is a form of like sex for him. I'm curious what you think. That's a, yeah, that's great. I really didn't think of him very much as like a character who's motivated by sex. I put more meaning in the fact that it's his home and it's like the same place that he was before and that it had to do with his family. That's a great read. One more that I want to mention, I do think that there is room that Michael at age six when he kills his sister may have had like a, abuse or trauma and is and is triggered by what he is seeing and hearing. Yeah. I don't think that was necessarily something that was thought about in writing the film, but I do think that while we're really digging into potential reasons, that's something that could track. I think that would actually kind of provide a lot of context, not to say that those who are abused necessarily right. immediately, like necessarily become abusers, but if he is also someone who was born without like a soul or kind of a moral compass and also experienced this specific trauma that combination of things it would make total sense that yeah that he would have the response that Mm -hmm. he had i think there's like the demonizing women who are expressive of their sexuality certainly a theme in horror movies but i also think like one maybe layer wider than that is just this belief that women are the more vulnerable in society constantly which is why they're the ones that are more susceptible to this kind of danger it's like I'm just ditzy and like cute and I flip my hair and flirt with boys which is like so much of what Annie and Linda are specifically there's a vulnerability around young women and he like never tries to kill a kid which like I good that he doesn't try to kill a kid but I do think that's also like maybe telling. I think that I would feel a little bit less confused if he murdered his sister in a premeditated way and we could see that it was premeditated but the fact that this does feel like 
She is supposed to be looking after him. She has no idea where he even is. She has sex. He comes in. He grabs a knife, comes in, like stabs her immediately. It just feels so reactive. I just, I don't know. Also, I'm. this might be a very obvious and I just can't understand it, or I haven't really come up with a correct analysis for it, but the what is his relationship with the mask? Why is it that wearing the mask is the thing he needs to commit violence? That makes me feel like there's some level of humanity there that he's like mm. removing. And when his mask comes off, he looks so scared. Maybe I'm making that up. I love him. <laughs> but no, but do you know what? I, I feel like I, he looked very like deer in the headlights. I didn't think he looked like that when he was a kid and he came out. No, at the end. Oh. When he, when for a second the mask gets taken off. Yeah. He very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point. Yeah. I also think it's meaningful that there is one moment when he, we'd see his real face, like really did pick a man who had a chiseled look to his face and all those things. So I think there is something too that like he is an attractive individual with an unattractive temperament. (laughs) Or maybe the whole movie you're hoping he looks really like ghastly. Ghastly, yeah. And then we see him and he looks like someone that you wouldn't look twice on the street. But I did feel while watching the movie, like it weakened the fear factor for me to see him for a second. I do just want to ask you guys about the jack-o'-lantern because we have a jack-o'-lantern in the credit scene. We have a jack-o'-lantern on the balcony of Lindsay's house. There's a jack-o'-lantern, maybe the same one next to Linda and Bob when they have sex. Lori is carving a jack-o'-lantern. Tommy falls on a pumpkin. Who is the jack-o'-lantern? Who is the pumpkin? I love that question. (laughs) I think that it ties this movie to the child-like aspects of Halloween. That's a very kind of innocent, joyful thing. To me, it's not at all sinister, and to connect those two things feels very scary. There aren't very many reminders in the movie that this is the hell it's the anniversary of Michael committing this crime towards his sister. 15 years have passed, but here is still this tradition. Here is still this literal symbol of this cherished and prized time in this man, man's life. And it's supposed to be associated with innocence, but in this world, it's, the parents are all leaving yeah. and it's just teenagers and young children. And the teenagers are then exposing these young children to things that were their parents present, they likely wouldn't have been exposed to. Yeah. And so there is a level of kind of it's so sinister. That's, I, that's the other thing. That's actually what I think I was trying to get at before with the thing about women. It's not just they're like that they're vulnerable. I think it's that they're assumed to be innocent so often, like that there's this innocence and like when you spoil it, like that's really what is so wrong about what's happening. And maybe that feeds into the explanation for Michael being particularly vicious towards women is like his view of this corrupted innocence. Yeah, which is also maybe why he doesn't kill the kids. Like, that kind of just is crazy to me, that he just looms around. So it does make it seem like he's not just killing for the sake of killing if he isn't killing children also. Mm -hmm. Like, he's really going for the teenagers. He loves teens. Yeah. He doesn't even bother to try and find them when Laurie stashes them away in a cupboard 
which which kind of would have been a good tactic, right? It would have taken her out of the cupboard and made her try to defend them. But he doesn't even try to scare them, really. And that feels like it adds a level of humanity to him that I... I'm not sure that he is supposed to have. Yeah. This, I think the conundrum about this movie is the specificity and intentionality of where he is on the human scale feels a little bit fuzzy to me. I'm not sure if my impression of him having a little spark of human there is what was intended because this doctor that has been closely surveying him for 15 years says there's absolutely nothing there. So why is he, he sparing the children? I, I don't really understand that. I really do think in the end, this movie was probably just made to scare people and the target audience, mm -hmm. right? Like baby sisters and their boyfriends, right? Yeah. Probably trying to fool around it. There was meant to be like a relationship between the people watching the movie and the people that they saw yeah. on the screen. It was meant to be about them. Like mm -hmm. these raucous teenagers just trying to do foolish things. Yeah. I feel like a culture balloon that needs to keep getting pulled back down to earth by you guys. I'm, I'm like, I don't understand why they did this and this. And you, and you guys are like, it is a movie. Or that this is a movie. No, but I, I love how you're thinking about it. I really do. And I think that that's what's so fun about horror specifically is like I feel like I say this all the time but it's not bound to the same rules as any other even like a sci-fi mm -hmm. film there's rules that you have to abide by and horror just like completely you don't have to abide by anything and it creates all of this space for creativity not only on the part of the creators but on the part of the viewers yeah. too but because of that it's so easy to get stuck on yes. the hamster wheel it's the wonderful thing and also the dangerous thing about horror movies is you can talk about one single frame for an infinite amount of time and yeah. never conclude a no thing about it. Yeah. because it is so situated in the time that it is created and yeah. so you need to have a total understanding of what that time was in order to get it. Yeah, at. and I also think part of what they were trying to do with this movie, which is true of, I think, every movie we've watched so far, is they just wanted to do something different in this genre. Like, they just wanted to try something. <laughs> I think every single one of them so far, they've all been independent films. They've all been very experimental in the way that they were made and, like, very bare bones. These people were so daring in what they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Like, they were so young. Yeah, and I think that this is the core question that we are continually pursuing is we are watching these movies that are eliciting a visceral emotion in us, an emotion that is like stronger than other emotions that might come up when watching film. And we then have to ask the question, why am I scared? What is scaring me about this? And there are just so many things to be afraid of. Yeah. And film is so creative in, in how it's scary because Halloween and Texas Chainsaw Massacre get put under, we're putting them under the same category, but Texas Chainsaw Massacre is so scary to me because of the, like the torture and the blood and those things don't exist in Halloween. Like Halloween is scary in a completely different way. There's no, not a drop of blood except on Judith, Judith yeah, on her breasts, but it, they're so different but they're still so similar. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, it's a great subgenre. It's good. And it's it is an emotion that I feel like, 
I think a lot of us have shut ourselves off from sadness, like happiness, wistfulness, but fear is something that is incredibly hard to shut yourself off from. So I do feel like it's a genre that elicits an emotion that like, to some extent, everyone has access to. Absolutely. And that's so beautiful. I love that because when you watch like a sad movie, not everybody is going to cry. But when you watch and not everyone is going to jump and scream at the same times, but actually they probably will, especially if one person, like whenever I watch movies with people and I like have a jump scare that gets to me because they always do, everyone also jumps around me because I scare them so it's like yeah. you're gonna elicit the same response yeah. in some capacity and that's such a great yeah horror is honestly uh, it's an equalizer of experience yeah. it like pulls everybody oh, in I, and so I love that I do think it's so humanizing to like experience a movie that way also like these movies that we're talking about I think all of them had went all around the world it doesn't matter the cultural context like it's a scary movie mm -hmm. it will make you scared because someone's chasing you yeah. and trying to stab you in a closet that's true <laughs> yeah humor is very like linguistically based like culturally based geographically based but fear is universal thank you so much for listening we hope you enjoyed this episode and learned a little something as a reminder we are on instagram so please give us a follow and interact with our content at we are scared pod you can also email us if you have questions complaints curiosities or you just have a lot of feelings that you want to get out in an email to someone, we'd be happy to receive. We are scaredpod at gmail.com. I hope you have a terrifying week. And if you actually do, it's not my fault. Thanks, bye. Let's go, girls.